Trinity and how that affects our understanding of relationships in the church and in the family. And we're about to get round two. And so, Dr. Ware, we're grateful to have you here this morning. Bruce Ware has been a professor of theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's the largest, one of the largest seminaries in the world. It's the largest of the Baptist seminaries. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. It's where I went to school, and that's my first exposure to him. He's been there 19 years, I think you said, as a professor there, taught in seminaries before that. Speaks at conferences, just a very gifted professor. Some of you have asked me about you know, how I knew him, and some of you said at the break time after Sunday school, we can see why you enjoyed him so much in seminary. But not only did you, do, do you get to hear him in this, if you want to go deeper, he's also an author. He wrote a book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. So if you went a lot deeper than what you even got in the last hour... So Drew, wherever <coughs> Drew went in the room, this is, this is for you here. Um, and so this, this goes even deeper into what you've heard on this. He's written other books. There's like growing trends today of people who believe that God is in process. God doesn't know the future. You'll hear people wrestling with that. He's written books, God's Lesser Glory, to help you think through that. But the one that I most want to recommend, I don't have with me because it's at home. And that's a book called Big Truths for Young Hearts. And it's how to teach theology to your kids and how to teach theology to children. And so it's a great book I would highly recommend to you. You'll probably be seeing that in an email from me in the weeks to come as far as a book recommendation for the congregation. Because I know he's an author as well. If you want to go deeper in some of the stuff he's talked about, that is available. But Dr. Ware, we're thankful as you come back to help us better understand the Trinity. So give Dr. Ware a welcome. Well, thank you so much for that warm welcome. And it really is a delight to be with Grady again and with his family. They have a lovely family. I mean, it's just really a delight to be with them and see the way God provided for him uh, a wonderful ministry here and for you, a wonderful pastor. I mean, this is a match made in heaven, isn't it? <clears throat> so we, uh, I rejoice with you and pray for many, many uh, good years of fruitful ministry, growth in your congregation, uh, receptivity to the Word of God as, uh, as Grady ministers that to you over the years. And uh, may God do many, many good things here in your midst. Well, this morning I'm continuing uh, our study of the Trinity. We looked at uh, uh, the doctrine in the Sunday school hour, those of you who are here. And uh, now I'm going to focus in one passage. You might want to turn there to be ready uh, for it in Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> where we see the, the persons of the Trinity, particularly in relation to our salvation. But I want to begin with a question for you. Uh, this question won't be a surprise to those who, of you who were here in the previous hour. Uh, the question is this. Have you learned to read your Bible with Trinitarian lenses on? That is, noticing as you read your Bible, particularly the New Testament, although there are quite a few things in the Old Testament as well to observe here, but particularly in the New Testament, have you, uh, have, have you been tuned into what I sometimes call the Trinitarian indicators uh, in the New Testament. That is specific references to the Father or the Son or the Spirit uh, that, that uh, just pervade the New Testament. I mean, if you're like me, I'll tell you how I used to read the Bible. And that is, I believe there's one God, and when I would see divine pronouns, a he or a him or a his, uh, that re obviously referred to God, I would just think of the one God. And uh, come to find out, most of the divine pronouns in the Bible uh, refer to one or another Trinitarian person, uh, not to the one God per se. Now, a few of them uh, refer to the one God, but uh, most of them are one or another Trinitarian person. So to see that is just to all of a sudden see a, a richness and depth to what is taught in the Bible that, at least in my experience, was I just passed over that, didn't see it until the Lord kind of awakened me to see that. And we'll see this in Ephesians 1 this morning. So I think when you leave this morning, you'll want to pick up a pair of those glasses, you know, to take home with you, those Trinitarian lenses, to be able to keep reading the Bible this way. Well, what I want to do this morning through Ephesians 1 is really two things. <clears throat> First is, in verses 1 and 2, when we look at that together, is to observe there what, what might be called the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is evident just in the way Paul understands the, the father-son relationship as depicted in those opening two verses. Believe it or not, <clears throat> as common as those verses are and, uh, and uh, kind of the normal way he begins his letter, letters, uh, this really tells us something about the way Paul thinks of the relation of the father and the son. And we'll look at that together. 
And then verses 3 to 14, we'll focus there on the, uh, the distinctive works of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in our salvation, what each of them contributes to the work of the one God in saving us. But the one God who saves us is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and we want to see how that works. So first of all, let's take a look at this passage. Let's read it through, shall we? <clears throat> and observe just afresh what Paul says here in Ephesians 1 verses 1 to 14 to prepare us to then take a look at it more uh, specifically. If you'd like to follow along, I'll read from the New American Standard translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Well, let's look, first of all, in verses 1 and 2 at what might be called the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity. First of all, in verse 1, notice that Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, uh, saints in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so notice Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he's an apostle of Christ Jesus not by the will of Christ Jesus, right? Paul is an, is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So indeed, he understands here a distinction between Christ Jesus and God. <clears throat> now, I, I believe, I, I, it would take too long to defend this thoroughly, but I believe that here Paul does what he does many, many cases, and that is he uses the term theos, God, as shorthand for God the Father. I think that's pretty clear that this is the case because you go on to verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, when he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I'm pretty confident he has in mind God the Father. In fact, I have a, a doctoral student who just wrote a dissertation recently under me in which he discovered that about 95% of the usages of theos, the word God, <clears throat> in the New Testament are references specifically to God the Father. It's really quite amazing. So in any case, this is God the Father. So he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Well, one thing that indicates is that Paul understands Christ and God the Father as distinct. Distinct. It's one of the, the themes, one of the pillars that has to be in place to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is that Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, distinct from each other, and here he sees that distinction. So it is, in fact, he, he is an apostle of Christ. That is, he bears witness of Christ. He carries out the mission of Christ. Uh, he wants to advance the gospel of Christ. 
He wants people to know about Christ and to follow Christ. Whose will is it that he do that? The Father wills that the Son carry out uh, the, the mission and be, and be an ambassador for Christ. <clears throat> so, indeed, there is this distinction then that Paul sees between the Father and the Son. And furthermore, there's something else that it is implied here that we see more specifically later on. And that is it indicates that the Father has this highest position within the Trinity and that he's the one who has the ultimate authority. So it's the will of the Father that he, that he carry out uh, his ministry that advances the gospel of Christ. The Father is the one who is the grand architect, the, the, the wise designer of everything, including what happens in the church. Remember, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. The Father gives to him authority over all things. There are many passages that speak of this, including the end of Ephesians 1 that we won't take time to look at. You could look at that later. But indeed, the Father grants his Son that position over all. So the Father has this highest position. So indeed, it is the will of the Father that, that, uh, that Paul then represent Christ in his ministry. So distinction is one of those two pillars that has to be in place to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Compare that to verse 2, where Paul now says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the power of the word and in that sentence. Did you ever think the word and could be powerful? Oh my, it is. Look at this. What does that word and signal? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, two things. Two things. One is distinction continues, right? So this is not like saying, I'd like you to meet Bruce, who is Jody's husband, right? That's two names that refer to the same person. It's not that. This is grace and peace to you from, first of all, God our Father, and second of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So distinction continues. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son. But that's not the most important thing that the word and signals, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who alone can give grace and peace? God. So God, our Father, grants what only God can give, grace and peace, but that grace and peace comes also and from Jesus Christ. He must be equal to the Father. He must have the same uh, attributes and, and abilities, capabilities that the Father has to be able to grant what only God has, grace and peace, that can come from Jesus Christ, well, then he must be himself God. So it indicates a full equality of the Father and the Son as well. So here we have the second theme, the second pillar, if you want to think of that image, pillar that upholds the doctrine of the Trinity. We've got to have distinction so that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons of the Trinity. They're not the same person. They're not three names for the same person. They're three distinct persons. But you also have to have Father, Son, and Spirit who are equal to each other. And their equality is grounded in the fact that each of them possesses the identically same divine nature. One God, hence one nature of God. And that one nature is possessed by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit fully. Each of them has all of the attributes of God. Each of them possesses eternally the one divine nature. So one God, but three personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. So these two themes then, you can see Paul thinks this way when he thinks of the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, as we bring that in later on. <clears throat> he sees Father, Son, and Spirit as distinct persons, but they together constitute the one God. The one God is none other than eternal Father, eternal Son, and eternal Spirit. Uh, one other passage, I mentioned this in the first hour as well, that I think just helps us see this. It's the opening verse of John's Gospel. John 1.1, 1, 1, 
you see these two themes of distinction and equality. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Distinction, right? The, the Word is with God. They're distinct from each other. Now, they're with each other, but one is the Word, the other is God. They are distinct uh, persons. But then the verse ends, and the Word was God. Equality. So, indeed, both of these themes, distinction of persons, equality, in that each possesses the one undivided divine nature, both of them have to be understood and embraced to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. We Christians are Trinitarian monotheists. We are not Unitarian monotheists. A Unitarian monotheist would say monotheist, there's one God, but that one God is Unitarian, one person. That's not our view. We are monotheists, but we are Trinitarian monotheists. One God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We also are not tritheists, which is a version of polytheists, like Hindus, right, who believe in many gods. So it's not that the Father is a different God than the Son. The Son is a different God than the Spirit. There are three gods. Oh, no, there is one God. So we are not polytheists tritheists, we are not Unitarian monotheists, we are distinctively Christians, we are Trinitarian monotheists. So indeed, one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, let's look how this works out then in the salvation that God designs and carries out for us in the verses that follow. We see in verses 3 to 14 at least some of the aspects of our salvation. This is not by any means all of it, but some of it that Paul talks about here that is glorious. And let's begin where Paul begins, and that is with the Father. <coughs> so we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now it strikes me. Paul could have written this in a different way that would have been true, but it would have highlighted the one God. He could have written, Blessed be God who has brought to us all the blessings that we receive. True enough. But for Paul, evidently not precise enough, right? So rather than saying, Blessed be God for all the blessings God has brought to us, he says more precisely, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You see it? So indeed, the way Paul frames this then is to understand that behind all of the blessings we receive in this life and in the life to come, oh my goodness, by the way, friends, we have no idea how much is in store for us for all of eternity. I mean, we would blush with embarrassment if we knew how much God has designed for us, the Father has designed for us. So behind all of the blessings we receive in this life and in the life to come stands the Father who has brought those to us, who has, who has conceived of them, who has designed them for us. The Father is the one who is the grand architect of our salvation. So indeed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So all of those blessings designed by the Father, but brought into reality through the work of the Son, only because of what Christ has done in his work on the cross and the, the resurrection do those blessings come to us. All of the blessings God has designed, all of them come through the agency of the work of his son. But I think in verse 3, Paul is thinking actually of the whole Trinity. I think he has in mind also here the Spirit. Because no, notice he says, Grace to you and peace, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You see that phrase? Spiritual blessing. What is that? Well, here's one possibility. 
And that's to say that what Paul is highlighting here, why the Father should be praised, is because he's brought to us blessings that are spiritual in nature. Who cares about those blessings that are physical and material, right? So he's distinguishing the, uh, the in- unimportant material physical blessings from the spiritual blessings that the Father brings to us. That's one possibility. I don't think it's right. I, I'm very doubtful that that is the case. That really is a, a, quite a Gnostic way of thinking. If you know what Gnosticism is in the first century that some of the biblical writers fought with, a Gnostic view would say uh, that, that the things of the realm of the spirit are good, but things of the, of, that are physical and material are fundamentally evil. And so we move away from the physical to the spiritual. So that's a Gnostic way of thinking, but it really isn't a biblical way of thinking, is it? Think of the Lord's Prayer. What is the first petition we ask of God in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day spiritual blessings. Uh Uh-uh. Give us this day our daily bread. Pretty physical, right? Who does it come from? Our Father who is in heaven, right? So indeed, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift, that includes the clothes we're wearing, the, 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 the homes we live in, the, uh, the, the physical blessings. Now granted, granted, they're not the most important, but goodness, they're all from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So indeed, every blessing is from the Father, including the physical blessing. So back to verse 3, what does it mean that he grants to us these spiritual blessings? Here's, here's my thought, is I think Paul is thinking Trinitarian. I think he's thinking these blessings are designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son, because they all come in Christ, but they're spiritual blessings insofar as we only receive them as the Spirit brings them to us personally, existentially, subjectively. We become the recipients of what the Father has designed, what the Son has accomplished. We receive them through the ministry, the work of the Spirit. (coughs) So indeed, a, a Trinitarian exaltation, but here with the focus upon the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just show you quickly how the Father in our salvation does continue to have this place of priority, the grand architect, the wise designer. So every one of the things that Paul then specifies that we revel in as believers, what we've received that accounts for our salvation, guess where they come from? The Father, ultimately. So he goes on then in verse 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us. Who's the He? It's the Father, right? If you're not clear about that, because it follows down from verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, just as He, the Father, chose us. If you're not clear on that, just look at the next phrase. Just as He chose us, in Christ, right? So now we see it. Indeed, the Father is the one who chooses us. So get this. The very first blessing that comes to the Apostle Paul's mind when he thinks, why should the Father be praised? Why, 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 why should we extol the Father for the blessings that he has brought to us? <coughs> the very first blessing that comes to the Apostle Paul's mind and off his pen is this, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Here's the second one, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now here's one lesson in this, my friends. If the first thing, the first concept The first reality that comes to the Apostle Paul's mind when he thinks, why should God be praised is the Father chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. If the first concept is divine election, 
And we think, in many of our Baptist circles, we think, oh, we want to stay, from that, stay away from that doctrine of election. It's divisive. It's problematic. You know, we, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Well, if Paul thinks it's glorious, we think it's problematic, I think one of us is not thinking about it correctly. I wonder who that is. Hmm. Telling, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. It is glorious. Why? Why does Paul begin there? Because he knows if the Father has not chosen us to be his people through his Son, in his Son, in eternity past, before he even created us, if he hadn't chosen us, we would not be here as the saved people of God. It depends upon that choice of the Father to have a people who are his people, who will be holy and blameless before him, who will be his adopted sons. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Do you feel how precious that is? He said, I want you to be in my family, my adopted son or daughter. This is the choice of the Father before he created the universe. So when he created, he went after us and brought us to himself through the work of the Spirit. More on that in, in a bit. So indeed, the Father is the one who chose us. The Father predestined us. And as you work through this passage, you see, you, you see that the Father is the one who brings us all of these blessings. Let me point out one more to you, just again to see the, uh, um, the fullness of the work of the Father in designing all that takes place in our salvation. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> at the end of verse 8, at least in the way the NASB uh, does the, uh, the sentencing here, at the end of verse 8, we read the beginning of a sentence, in all wisdom and insight. Now notice the pronouns. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Okay, who, who are the he's and the him's and the his's? It's the Father, right? In all wisdom and insight, he, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, according to his, the Father's kind intention, which he, the Father, purposed in him, the Son. So, I mean, it's just real, really amazing, isn't it, when you realize, ah, it is indeed the Father who wills it, who intends it, who purposes it. Do you, do you hear that design concept in all of that? He designs it. He, he's the one who, who conceives of the way in which we can be saved. The Father is the one who sends the Son because the Father designed salvation through the Son. When the Son comes, he says, I did not come on my own initiative. I came as the Father sent me. I came to do the will of my Father. Not my will, but yours be done, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So indeed, our salvation is designed by the Father, conceived, planned, purpose, intended by the Father so that we would be saved in his Son. Through whom then he, he brings all of us to himself, only through the work of his Son. Okay, so the grand architect of our salvation clearly is the Father. He's designed it, he's planned it, he's willed it, and indeed we owe to him great thanksgiving, great praise for designing the salvation that is ours. But now we move on. If the grand architect of salvation is the Father, the glorious accomplishment of salvation is through the Son. And the focus here, of course, it's, it's all through this passage in the in hymns. It's all in him, right? In, including verse 3. All of the blessings we receive are in him, in Christ. So it's all through here. But the special focus that Paul has on the work of the Son is in verse 7. We see this verse begins, in him, the in him there is, refers back to the end of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his, the Father's grace, 
which he, the Father, freely bestowed on us in the beloved Son, in his beloved Son. So the end of verse 6 is talking about Jesus. So now the beginning of verse 7, in him that is in Christ. We have, uh, uh, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Okay, so here the focus uh, that Paul wants to, to highlight here is the redemption of the son, the work in which he redeems us to be his people. So let me take just a moment on that and, and think, with, think with you about what that means. The word redemption in the New Testament is a word that comes out of the marketplace, you know. Uh, you would go to the agora, the marketplace, that's the Greek word for it, and what you would do there is agorazo. You would purchase. So re redemption is the notion of purchasing from the marketplace. Now here the idea is that he purchases us, us from our slavery to sin and to Satan. He buys us, as it were, with his shed blood, as we see in this verse. And, and so because we are purchased by him, we are his. You know, this is why Paul will make the point, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, he said uh, that, that, that we need to, to be careful the way we use our bodies, right? Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he says, or do you not know that, that you have been purchased by, through, through Christ? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. So to be purchased means... We're his. He owns us. You know, I think it's one of the things we should share with people when we share the gospel and we sense they are, are at this point when they are being moved by the Spirit to come to Christ, help them know that this means they come to the one who has bought them. So they understand from the get-go that they're no longer their own. They belong to him. Their lives are entirely his to do with as he chooses. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So indeed, this is what redemption conveys. And it is through his shed blood that this happens, which brings about the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is interesting because you realize that in the Old Testament, God provided shed blood, right? The blood of bulls and goats and lambs that were slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins. So what, what is the point of Christ coming to do this now? Why not just have those Old Testament sacrifices? Why, why wouldn't that do? And, uh, of course, the book of Hebrews is so helpful in understanding this. Uh, one verse I find really, really instructive. It's in Hebrews 10, verse 4, where we read, Hebrews says, The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Isn't that interesting? So, indeed... You might ask the question then, if they cannot take away sin, what was going on in the Old Testament and, and what's happening here with Christ? And here's how I would put it. Is those Old Testament sacrifices uh, that happened all the way through the Old Testament from, from the time of Moses when the law was given to the people, all of those sacrifices in and of themselves paid nothing for the sin that the people had committed. It is not as though they paid 20%, you know, and Christ paid the remaining 80%. Oh, no, they paid zero. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, and yet God granted them forgiveness when they offered those sacrifices. Well, how could that be if they actually didn't pay? And here's the answer. Because every one of those sacrifices pointed forward to a sacrifice that would pay fully for those sins. It's kind of like, by analogy, those, those sacrifices in the Old Testament and the forgiveness of sin that happened, it's kind of like sin was forgiven on credit. Right? So, you know, so, so for example, <clears throat> if later today you, you, go, you go to Target uh, and you, you, want, you want to get a, a shirt you know, at Target... Well, instead of pulling out cash from your wallet, who does that, you know? Uh, instead of pulling cash out of your wallet, you pull out a credit card. And you, let's put scare quotes around it, you pay for it with your credit card, right? So you hand the credit card, he swipes it, and, and, and you sign, at least you used to, you sign this slip 
that indicates what? It obligates you to a future payment. How much do you pay for that object right now? Nothing. You pay zero. Get the point. You don't pay 20%. You pay the later, the 80% later. Oh, no. You pay zero. And yet when you leave the store, the, the, uh, the guard at the door doesn't stop you for stealing. Why wouldn't he? You didn't pay anything for this. Because you obligated yourself legally to a future payment. Every time a lamb was slaughtered, a bull was given in the Old Testament to forgive sin, someone signed the credit card slip, obligating himself to a future payment. Who was that? The father who would pay the payment with his son. Isn't it incredible? So indeed, the son comes then to be the payment. He's the only payment that there is. He's the only payment that works. His payment pays it in full. And so sins are forgiven, all of them, by the work of Christ. I love, the what is it, the third verse perhaps of And Can It Be? Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, wrong hymn. Of, of It Is Well With My Soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen. So indeed, he's the one, he's the only one who could do this to bring about full lasting, permanent, final redemption. Through his shed blood, we receive full forgiveness of sin. So, salvation designed by the Father, <clears throat> accomplished <clears throat> through the work of his Son. And then last, capital letter C, the gracious application of salvation is through the Spirit. The gracious application of salvation is through the Spirit. And here we pick up, the, the Spirit comes into view specifically in verses 13 and 14. <coughs> now you remember, I think the Spirit is there in verse 3, the spiritual blessings. We talked about that already. I think Paul, Paul, Paul begins with a, an overarching Trinitarian concept, but then he goes through Father, Son, and Spirit, and now his focus is on the Spirit. Let's read again verses 13 and 14. <coughs> In him, that is, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, notice in verse 13, he reminds them of how they were saved. And the way they were saved is they listened to the message of truth. Paul came uh, and, and told them about the gospel. You know, he visited the city of Ephesus. He's the one who brought the gospel to these people. And, and so they heard the message of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and then they believed in that message. And that's the way they were saved. Now, let me just camp there for a moment. It's not the main point of my sermon, but I think it's worth just a minute on. There is a view out there. It's called inclusivism. Uh, that, that some evangelicals are advocating that says people don't need to hear the gospel of salvation to be saved because there is already saving revelation uh, there in their culture, I anywhere in the world. They see God in creation. Uh, they, they know God in their own conscience. Uh, and, and therefore, they don't need the message of the gospel brought to them, spoken to them, preached to them, as it were, because they're all, they already have access to it. And, of course, they think this is kind of a, a merciful, kind way of thinking because that provides more people opportunity to be saved because they already have access to saving truth. But here's the problem, friends. It's not true. And because it's not true, it's not what the Bible teaches, and because it's not true, what does it do? It gives us 
false confidence that people out there are okay without sending missionaries. It undermines the necessity, the urgency of missions. It's horrible. I mean, it's wrong, number one, and it has huge negative implications. Where is, how do we know it's wrong? Well, how about Romans 10, verse 13? Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe unless they hear? How shall they hear unless someone preach? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So indeed, my friends, what you read here is the only way people are saved after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Believed what? The gospel they heard. Oh, people must hear the gospel. Missions is necessary. And I know uh, Grady is committed to that. I know your church is. I would just encourage you to, to consider ways in which you can increase your support of missions because of how crucial this is. Okay, moving ahead then. So here are people, Paul reminds them how they came to Christ. They heard the gospel. They believed in Christ. What happened when they believed? Ah, amazing. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here's the first thing that happened. It happens the minute you put your faith in Christ. You are put into Christ. You are united to Christ. You are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works to put you into Christ so that you are his forever. You know, we hold as Baptists rightly the doctrine of eternal security, that once you are truly saved, of course, there, there is a possibility of profession of faith that is not real. That, we always have to remember that. But once you are truly saved, you cannot lose that salvation. You cannot forfeit that salvation. You are his forever. And indeed, here is one of many uh, supports for it, but it's a glorious support. How do we know that we are his forever? Because the minute we believe, the Spirit seals us into Christ. Remember, the Spirit is God, omnipotent. He has, he has all power to hold us in Christ forever and ever. Nothing can remove us from being in the Son. So that's one thing that happens is he puts us into Christ. And then verse 14, here's the second thing the Spirit does. The Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So not only does the Spirit put us into Christ, Christ, actually the Father through Christ, puts the Spirit into us. You see it? So indeed, we receive the Spirit. The Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. We become temples of the Holy Spirit. We become th those who have the Spirit dwelling within. Do you remember the words of Jesus? This is in John 14. When he said to his disciples, "He who speaking of the Spirit, he who is with you will be in you. Ah, so here is the glorious fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament, what Jesus himself promised. When I go back to heaven, you know, in, in John 16, oh, in John 16, at verse 7, he, these are some of the most astonishing words I've, I've read in Scripture. He says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I'm going back to the Father. It is to your advantage that I'm leaving you. I mean, they're stunned. How, what possible advantage could there be for the long-awaited Messiah who has finally come? What possible advantage could there be for, for him leaving? And then he goes on to say, for if I don't go back to the Father, I won't send him to you. But if I go back to the Father, I will send the Spirit to you. Do you get the point, my friends? The Spirit who is upon me, he who has been with you because he's been in me, I now will give to you. So what could be better than having Jesus walking by your side? Having the Spirit of Jesus dwelling in your life. 
So here it is, the Spirit given to us as the indwelling presence of Christ, as the empowering presence, the one who will come and enable us to to grow in holiness, to live lives that bring honor to Christ, to, to, to eventually become like Christ through the power of the Spirit. This gift of the Spirit is given to us. We receive it, and it is, as recorded here in verse 14, the, a pledge of our inheritance. That is, it's, it's, it's like an engagement ring, right? Pledging to this lovely young woman my life. I, I, I give myself to you. I pledge myself to you. So here is God the Father pledging himself to us, giving us his pledge of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the difference in his pledge and our pledges is obvious, right? Sadly, we can fail to keep our word. We can fail to carry through what we have pledged. But God the Father, He never fails. He always keeps His word. He always does what He says. And indeed, He pledges to us Himself. This is a pledge of our inheritance with a view to our redemption, our ultimate redemption when we are with Him in heaven. And, and, and the Spirit, he says, I want you to have that Spirit, that gift of the Spirit, that, that empowering Spirit, that enlivening Spirit, that, that illumining Spirit to help you understand my word. I want you to have that Spirit, but know this, that I give you that Spirit in part so you know you are mine. I claim you as my own. You will be mine forever. How glorious is that? So indeed... Our salvation is accomplished by God. But the true God of the Christian scriptures is Father and Son and Spirit. So the Father designs our salvation. He's he's the one who plans it, purposes it, wills it. And how does he will it to come to pass? Through the work of his Son, (coughs) who is the only one who can successfully bring about forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice, his redemption that he does on the cross. And as we receive that, as we hear that word and receive Christ, we then receive also the Spirit, the Spirit then who works within us to assure us of our salvation, to make us like Christ until the day comes when we will be with him in glory. So praise God for our salvation through the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. A few application points at the bottom of your outline. First of all, marvel. I I had just found that one of the most important application points uh, in just about every glorious truth that there is to talk about in the Bible is this application point, marvel. I mean, if, if we're not, if our affections are not moved as our mind is instructed, something has gone wrong. God intends there to be a connection between head and heart so that we not only know the truth of the truth, we see the beauty, the wonder, the splendor, the majesty of that truth. So indeed, marvel at the beauty of the triune God and of the salvation that he has accomplished. Isn't it just, isn't there a richness when you think of salvation done by God who is Father and Son and Spirit? You realize the fullness of this, the the greatness of it in ways that is just diminished if you just think of the one God. Yes, it is the one God, but the one God is only one as he is also three. So indeed, the Trinity, to see that. Secondly, (coughs) consider the work of the Trinitarian persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison, one in which there is a unity of work without sameness and a diversity of roles without discord. So, you know, this, this concept of harmony, I just find to be one of the most elegant, beautiful, rich uh, metaphors for understanding the Trinity, in which Father, Son, and Spirit each contribute their respective work, right?, to the one work of God. There is one unified work that brings about our salvation, but that one unified work 
is accomplished by the specific contribution of the Father, the specific contribution of the Son, the specific contribution of the Spirit. And, and, and honestly, we can't, we can't mix them up. And they're not interchangeable, right? It just can't be the case that the, the Son would have designed it who sends the Father. The Spirit is the one who dies on the cross. I mean, it just it doesn't work this way. It works only in the way that we have seen. The Father doing the work only He can do. The Son doing the work only He can do. The Spirit doing the work only He can do. But together, they form the one work of God. So distinctive and yet unified. Beautifully unified. But with a unity of harmony, right? As the three come together together. <coughs> Uh, beautifying, as it were, the other's works together. And then finally, third and last, understand the intrinsic authority submission structure within the, the relations of the very Trinitarian persons themselves and embrace the relevance of this to human life made in God's image. Authority and submission in relationships of husbands and wives, church leaders and church members, and of course in other areas beyond that. But to see in this there is this beautiful combination of full equality of the Trinitarian persons and yet uh, an authority structure where the Father's always Father. It isn't an ad hoc position that he then hands over to one of the others later on. No, he's eternal Father of eternal Son and eternal Spirit and yet they're fully God, equally God. And, and so the beauty of the equality and the distinction uh, expressed even in authority and submission is such a lesson for us. So may we be countercultural in many ways, but here's one. Here's one. Embrace rightful authority. Don't chafe at it. Embrace rightful submission. Don't chafe at it. Oh my. So we can represent who God is in the way we live together as his people made in his image. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had this morning to look at these glorious truths from your word describing who you are. Help us to know you better, to see more through the Bible of your Trinitarian nature. And Lord, through that, to love and adore you, to worship you with greater, uh, with greater zeal, and to live lives in ways that greater show you our love and respect uh, and our adoration. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Ware. Friends, you have heard the gospel this morning. You have heard the truth of who God is. And for you brothers and sisters who are already in Christ, I pray it has stirred your heart to want to worship the Lord, to know him more, and to make him known. Perhaps there's someone here who's never trusted Christ, who's never had the experience that you've just seen laid out of, of the Father planning your salvation and Christ making it possible and the Spirit of God applying it to you. If that's you and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, let today be the day. Come talk to me. Come see Dr. Weir. Ask your friend sitting next to you if you'd like to learn more of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But for all of us right now who are in Christ, we want to respond in song. So would you stand, please, as we sing our closing song this morning and return to the Lord and worship and praise just a small glimpse of what is due to him.